and then on which the teaching is going to be based. If you don't have a Bible with you, then I'd invite you. There's one that's on the rack in front of you. You can take that. You can find 1 Corinthians chapter 3 on page 1,130. So here we go. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 18 to 23. The Apostle Paul writes, Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about men. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Ask him to bless our study of it. Our Father, we thank you for you speaking to us in the words of the Bible. And we pray now that as we look at these words that were written by the Apostle Paul but were inspired by you, that we would see exactly what you want us to see. Lord, everyone comes in with things that are happening in their lives, distractions potentially. And Lord, I pray that as we study this passage, those things would not be erased, that they wouldn't be removed, but that we would focus those things and see what you would have us to teach us, what you would teach us about the things that are going on in our lives through your word. That this message would speak directly to the circumstances of the lives of the people who are seated here this morning. May they see, may we see what you want us to see. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're joining us for the, for the first time this morning or for the first time in a while, then then what's, what's useful for you to know is that we've been, really since the beginning of January, kind of progressively working through this letter that the Apostle Paul, the early church leader, the early Christian church leader, Apostle Paul, wrote to the, to the church that had started in the Greek city of Corinth. And, and Corinth was a pretty messed up church, the church that was there. It was pretty messed up, which for us today has the potential both to discourage or or both to challenge and to encourage us. It challenges us as we look at a pretty messed up church in the first century. It challenges us because as we see Paul highlight areas where they were falling short, we ourselves see the same areas where we fall short as well. And so it challenges us. But it also has the great potential to encourage us because what it points out is that the struggles that are faced here in the 21st century are really not all that different at their core fundamentally from the struggles that were faced in the first century. And so in the passage that we just read, Paul is in the middle of a, of a larger and more extended discussion about how we, specifically we as a church, how we are to live together with common purpose without division or conflict. Now that's easy to say, but that's really hard to do, isn't it? To get a group of people to, to be together, to, to, to live together, to, to do life together, and to have common purpose without division or conflict. And Paul is hitting, even in just what we just read, on, on a frequent cause of disunity, that, and that is the arrogant, self-centered assumption that we are wise and everyone else is foolish. And this is very common, this belief that we kind of possess all the information, all the discernment that's necessary in a particular situation to make a judgment about how that situation would go. And Paul is saying that it matters very much the perspective that you bring to that. Because Paul is not saying that it's wrong 
to speak into a situation where you see foolishness happening. If that were the case, then Paul himself would sort of be hypocrite exhibit A because that's what Paul's doing. That's what the entire letter is about. It's him confronting the church in Corinth and saying that what they're doing is foolishness. So he's not saying that we shouldn't confront foolishness. And, and even in this very specific passage that we just read, to say that we shouldn't look at things and call them, call them foolish would be to be the opposite of what, exactly what he's doing. Because that's exactly what he's doing. He's looking at things and saying, this is foolish. This is foolishness. So that's not, the, the question then is not then that whether we should confront foolishness. The question is how we define the terms. In other words, what, what is wisdom and what is foolishness? So let's do that. Let's, let's think about that using three kind of questions. First, what is this wisdom of the world that Paul's talking about here, that he's, that he's saying we should not follow? What is the wisdom of the world? And second, why is Paul warning us about it? And third, how does Jesus make us truly wise? What is the wisdom of the world? Why is Paul warning us about it? And how does Jesus make us truly wise? Let's start with the wisdom of the world. What is the wisdom of the world? Actually, let's just start with wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, whenever any of us make a decision about anything, any kind of decision, this is how we do it. Right? We start with a particular set of facts, information that defines what's happening. Right? The circumstance that lead us to make a choice or to behave in some kind of way or to make some kind of decision. Now, that's the starting point, but it's not always easy to get that, is it? I mean, it's not always easy to obtain the facts because the facts are not always clear. We don't always have all the information we want. But what, what I want us to see is that wisdom is different from the facts. Having all the facts is different than, than, than wisely interpreting and making decisions based on them. Because what, why do we see doctors smoking? Why do we see counselors with bad marriages? Why do we see police officers breaking the law? Why do we see accountants who don't know how to manage personal budgets? Why? Because knowledge and wisdom are two very different things. Knowledge isn't irrelevant to the decision that we make, but it doesn't actually make a decision for us. Never, knowledge never actually results in an action or causes a behavior. It is our will acting upon those facts and those information, th th that set of information that causes us to make a decision or act in a certain way. And so to do that, for our will to, to make a judgment and to make a decision based on a set of facts, we apply to it a, a sort of a set of core values, a, a, a system of things that we believe, how we view the world, how we interpret the world, and what's most important to us. And we apply that to the situation. And we call that, some people call that, a worldview. It's the lens through which we view those facts, that information on which then we make a, a decision. For example, my contact lenses that I'm wearing right now, they don't change at all the words that are printed on the page in front of me, but they do influence my ability to read them, to, to use them, to make decisions based on what's there. Now, similarly, our worldview is the lens through which we view the, the facts, through which we view the information around it, the, the, the lens through which we, we view it so that we can process it, so that we can use it, so that we can make decisions based on it. All right, so wisdom then, here's the definition then. Wisdom is when we rightly interpret information, process it, and make decisions with it. And the opposite of that then, foolishness, would be when we wrongly interpret information process it, and make decisions with it. But did you hear that word, the word that I used there in that, rightly? <laughs> when we rightly interpret information 
use it, and make decisions with it. See, that's the word that causes all the controversy. Because you see what happens? As soon as I use that word, what do I introduce? Value. I make a value judgment immediately when I say that it is right and it is wrong to make a value judgment, to, to, to do something in some, in some way. I make a value judgment. I call some actions wise. I call other actions foolish. And that's where the controversy begins. But see, everyone does it. Everyone uses whatever lens they have of how the world exists, and they use it to make judgments all the time. The question is not whether or not you're viewing the world through a particular lens. The question is, what lens are you using? Now, Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is kind of reducing it to, summarizing it with these two kind of choices. He said you can either view the situation around you, the world around you, through the lens of the world, what he refers to as the wisdom of the world, or you can view it through the lens of God, the, the, wisdom, of, the wisdom of God. Now, this is, this, is, this is actually very helpful because while there's lots of different ways where the wisdom of the world could play out, I think if we look at it, what's happening here in Corinth in the first century the wisdom of their world is actually very similar to the world that we live in right now in 21st century America. Right? So, so, let's, so, so what does it mean? The underlying value assumptions here in the first century are very much the same value judgments that we make here now. See, everyone ha every world system, every, every culture has a, a set of core principles a set of narratives that, that everyone accepts or that many people accept and then base their decisions based off of them. So now let me be concrete or a little more concrete. Here are three sort of core narratives, core beliefs that I think are indicative not just of the wisdom of the world in the first century in Corinth, but indicative of the wisdom of the world as we would view it here in 21st century America. Here, here's number one. Here's core narrative kind of view number one. Have it your way. Right? Have it your way. And I know that this was the case in Corinth, that this was something that was going on in Corinth, that this kind of mindset, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing about addressing the whole issue of sexual morality and the improper use of the body. And he goes through his argument, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. In other words, and Paul, Paul goes back, he goes back in just a couple verses before that, and he goes back to the original creation in Genesis chapter 2, and he said, this is how God designed things. This is how he made it. And then he said, because you rebelled against him and decided to do things your own way, God went out of his way to redeem you, to, 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 to buy you at a price. Therefore, then, honor God with your body. Now, do you see the cultural narrative, the wisdom of the world that Paul is addressing there? Because the wisdom of the world says, no, ha have it your way. You decide who you are. Right? No person, certainly no God revealed in some book, right? They, no one else has the right to define you. You are what you feel you are. In other words, have it your way. You get to decide. That's one core narrative of, of the world. Have it your way. Now, here's another. You only live once. You only live once. We talked about this at Easter time, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I know this was an issue in the first century church in Corinth because Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about how the resurrection of Jesus points to our own resurrection, but as he's doing it, he concedes that if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you never believed in the resurrection, then logically you would behave very differently. And he almost says it in an understanding kind of a way. He says, look, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you should go around like lots of other people do and say, hey, 
let's eat, let's drink, because tomorrow we're going to die. This is all we get. And our world says very much the same thing. There's nothing, nothing after this. There's no eternity. No heaven to be gained, no hell to be shunned. You just return to the dust. Now, for example, this is where we get this kind of modern Western notion of, of retirement. Right? We, we have, by virtue of the, the culture in which we live, many of us are able to save sufficient amounts of money and then have a block of time at the end of our life where we're able to do whatever we want. And, 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 and we begin to think of this, we begin to construct this as a culture as sort of a heaven replacement. And why not? I mean, it kind of makes sense. Right? Without a concept of eternity, why not create some sort, of, some sort of period at the end that we can kind of look forward to? Think about that. If there's, no, if, if there's no new heavens, no new earth, this place of infinite value that the Bible describes, well then by all means, you should get to see the Swiss Alps now because this is as good as it's going to get. Don't waste your time. Get there. Right? You, should, you better play as much golf as you can now. Because, I mean, fun, happiness, you've you got to get it now. Right? You better take it easy. Do as much resting, as much relaxing as you possibly can because there is no eternal rest. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying necessarily that travel and retirement is wrong, that playing golf is wrong, that, that particularly as you recognize the increasing limitations of your, of, of your body, that resting is wrong. Of course not. But what I am saying is that, is that the, the way that you view the world has a significant impact upon the choices that you make with the time that you have now. So that's another very common expression of the wisdom of the world. You only live once. Now, one last one. You deserve it. You deserve it. And there's a couple of places where I know that this is what Paul had in mind in the first century church in Corinth because he talks about it. In chapter 8, he, Paul tells the people about how they're caring much more about themselves when they, eat, they decide what food they're going to eat. He says you care more about eating whatever food you want than whether or not what you're eating is bothersome to someone else, whether it's a stumbling block to them. And then in chapter 14, he talks about it in the context of, of public worship. And he says that you, you're not taking, you come to worship, but you're not taking into consideration the needs of other people. You're only there for yourself. You're worried about what you're going to get out of it. And, of course, that cultural narrative is very, very common in our world today, isn't it? I mean, the world would say, we'd concede, sure, you ought to help other people. I mean, you know, helping is good and all that. But at the end of the day, you better make sure you look out for number one. You better put your own needs first. Make sure you fight for your rights, because if you don't fight for your rights, then no one else will. Now, I'm not saying that if you're in some kind of abusive relationship that you shouldn't seek help. You should seek it immediately. And I'm not saying that if you're a busy mom or you're a caregiver of an adult child with disabilities or you're, or you're caring for an aging parent or grandparent, I'm not saying that you should neglect caring for yourself. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get adequate rest, that you, you shouldn't eat well, you shouldn't exercise. But what I am saying is that your underlying view of whose needs have primacy, whose are most important, yours or someone else's, will have a significant impact on the wisdom that you use to prioritize the limited resources that you have. So do you see? In these examples, these underlying cultural narratives, have it your way. You only live once. You deserve it. They define the wisdom of the world, this collective wisdom that we as a culture use to determine what decisions we're going to make and what behavior we exhibit. And, and not to be... Up to this point, we're not actually... Paul's actually not being... Like, it's not necessarily critical. This is just 
This is just the way, this is just the way it works. If you believe that, then you're going to behave in a, in a certain way. So what is, the, what is the wisdom of the world? Have it your way. You only live once. You deserve it. Now, question number two. Why does Paul warn us about this? Because he actually does make a value judgment about it. Right? He goes, go back to chapter 3, verse, verses 18 to 20. Look at what he says. First look at verse 18. Right? He says that the wisdom of the world is deceiving. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool. Right? Now, it's deceiving. And this isn't just the fault of the wisdom itself. This language that Paul uses, do not deceive yourselves, implies a level of self-deception. Right? In other words... The wisdom of the world is attractive because at least at some level we want it to be true. There's something that it's telling us that we, that we want to have happen. You see, folly, foolishness, is, is deceptive. It doesn't reveal itself to be harmful. It masquerades itself as something good or else no one would call it wisdom in the first place. But it hides itself behind things that we say we want. Right, think, think again for a second about what we just defined. What is the wisdom of the world? Have it your way. You only live once. You deserve it. Right? Each of those things, at some level, they sound, they sound good, particularly to kind of our American kind of mindset. Is it? Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, life is about my choices, my life, my, my rights. Right? And, they, and, and they sound okay at some level because they resonate with something that we actually very deeply desire. Each of them points to something that we want. Think about it. Right? Have it your way. What is that offering? Freedom. Freedom. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing. You only live once. What is that that offering? Purpose. This is what my life is about. Go out and get it. Do something. Purpose, meaning. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing. You deserve it. What is that offering? Satisfaction. Happiness. Happiness. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing. Freedom, purpose, satisfaction, they're not bad things. And any belief system that promises those things would be attractive. It would seem like wisdom. But look at verses 19 to 20. Paul just straight up calls that kind of wisdom, he calls it foolish. He says the wisdom of God is foolishness in God's sight. In other words, it doesn't actually do what you want. It promises these things, but it does not deliver them. It will not deliver them. It will trap you. It will be futile, he says. Now, we could go through each of those kind of narratives. Have it your way. You only live once. Um, You deserve it. And and we could kind of show how each of them fail to deliver. But let me just just give an example on the last one, just for example. You deserve it. And and let me illustrate using a conversation that I had with with a couple earlier this week. We were talking about communication and conflict in marriage, right? Young couple, and, and, we, and we, were, we kind of put out there this kind of pretend scenario that we were working through. The scenario was this. It's been a busy week at work for, for both of them, and they're just exhausted, just completely worn out. And, and Saturday is coming, and as they look at their Saturday, they notice that they have this six-hour block of time where they don't have anything scheduled. They can use it in any way they choose to sort of recover from the very busy week that they both had. Now, because they're committed to their marriage and because they genuinely want to be with each other, they've decided that they want to spend this six-hour block together, all of the hours together. But each person has a very different way of how they would typically enjoy a free six-hour period after a long week of work. 
Now, one of them would prefer to veg on the couch. The other would prefer a 10-mile mountain bike ride. Get it so far? Now, because they've regularly watched the afternoon talk shows and they read the magazine covers in the line at the grocery checkout, they, they know that, that there's wisdom in expressing your needs in marriage, right? In, 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 in telling the other person what you want so that you can be happy and satisfied. And, of course, they don't want to start this big open kind of conflict because the talk shows say that's bad too, right? So they pull out something that they read once about compromise. Compromise, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Right? The wisdom of the world. So the dealing begins. All right. One of them starts. Right? We can do a bike ride, but we can only do it for two hours. That's all I got in me is two hours. And if we bike ride, then I get to pick the movie when we come back and veg. Fine, the other person says. That's fine. But it can't be a romantic comedy. As long as it's not a romantic comedy, I'm good with it. In fact, would you let me choose? And I want to ride for three hours. I mean, you offered two, but let's do three. That kind of splits the six even in the middle, and we want to be fair. And back and forth they go until they iron out the deal, and the official compromise is, is reached. Three hours of mountain bike riding, followed by three hours of vegging on the couch, watching a movie picked out by the mountain biker, but not a romantic comedy. Okay? Deal, right? Everybody's happy, right? Well, I mean, a little happy, but not as happy as they could be. Right, now, same scenario, and imagine it plays out instead like this. Right? Instead of the world's wisdom that says, you deserve it, each, inten each spouse intentionally focuses on the other person's needs first instead of their own, and the conversation goes like this. So what do you want to do on Saturday afternoon? And the other responds, I don't know, it's supposed to be really nice out. Let's go mountain bike riding. And the first one responds, but you don't really like mountain biking. Why don't we just, why don't we just get a couple of movies and we veg? Right? And the other responds, I... I'd love that, but I mean, it's going to be a great day. It's going to be a beautiful day. I think we need to mountain bike. I think you need some mountain biking. I insist, let's do it. And if we have time after that, then maybe we can watch a movie. How's that sound? And the first one says, that sounds great. And now you might look at that and say, like, eh, how sappy. But think about this for a second. Compare the two approaches, right? And notice the outcome. The outcome, in terms of what actually ends up happening, might be exactly the same. Half the time spent mountain biking, half the time spent watching a movie, right? But which one is less satisfying? The first one. The first approach. Why? Because in the first approach, you're negotiating a deal. You get your time to do your thing, but it's, it's really only under duress. And because you had to bargain away something in order to get it. So you get to veg or you get to mountain bike, but the other person, though physically with you, is not really with you. So you get what you deserve, which is what, which is what the world's wisdom told you that you should be looking for, but you don't get the satisfaction that it promised. In other words, the promise wasn't delivered. The wisdom deceived you. And that's exactly why Paul is warning us against it. This wisdom of the world deceives us. It will not actually deliver the satisfaction it will not actually deliver the purpose. It will not actually deliver what's being promised. Now, that's the second question. Why does Paul warn us against this? Now, third question. How does Jesus make us truly wise? I want you to notice that the main problem that Paul is addressing here, that he's dealing with in this text that we just read, is one of interpersonal conflict, which is why the example of marriage, though not perfectly 
perfectly applicable from what Paul's saying here, why, it's, why it is ultimately applicable, because it's one of interpersonal conflict that Paul's talking about. You see the reference again in, in verse, um, verse 21. Paul says, look, you guys, you keep going around and breaking off into factions, and one person saying, like, I like Paul, and the other person, I like Cephas, and the other person, I like Apollos, and, and because I like this person and follow them, that makes me better than you, and I get certain things because of this person, and, and, they, and, they, and they can't connect. They can't get on the same page. And Paul is saying that all this boasting about who you follow and what you think that following a certain person is going to give you, all of that is just utter foolishness. It might seem sophisticated. It it might seem to be what everyone else is doing because it makes you feel smart and makes you feel important. But Paul says it is foolishness to try to find your identity in those things. Why? Because what you're looking for, he says, is already yours. What, What does the world's wisdom promise us? Have it your way. Freedom. You only live once. Purpose. You deserve it. Satisfaction. All of those things, the reason why Paul says you will never find them through the wisdom of the world is because if you are in Christ, they are already yours. Look at verse 21. So then no more boasting about men. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Right? Now, in other words, what Paul is saying is that our ultimate security rests in our relationship with Jesus. Because a relationship with Jesus, being of Christ, means that we have a relationship with God because Christ is God. Right? All, the, all, the, all things, all the freedom, all the life purpose, all the satisfaction, all the things that the wisdom of the world promises but can't deliver, all those things are found only, ultimately, in God through Jesus Christ. Now, how does Jesus provide them? The picture is right here in front of us. It's right here. Back earlier this year when we were looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we saw in verse 30 that that Jesus himself is identified with wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 30, it says, Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom. In other words, he is wisdom in a person. Wisdom is a person, and it is Jesus. He is the lens through which we are to view the world and where we get all of those things, where we get our freedom, where we get our purpose, where we get our satisfaction. And when you consider Jesus himself to be wisdom, then all of this begins to make more sense. See, here on this table is the the bread and the cup that represent the sacrificial death of Jesus for us. And many of us have have become so accustomed to it that we don't, you know, we're here the first Sunday of every month, we do this, we become so accustomed to it that we don't really believe or really understand how utterly foolish something like this must seem to an outsider to someone who would just kind of come in and say, what are you doing exactly? It reminds me of that old, there's an old Michael Card song, probably about 30 years old now, where, where he talks about how, how foolish Jesus must have seemed to someone who is viewing the world through the lens of the world's wisdom. Card writes, it seems I've imagined him, Jesus, all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's only wisdom is foolish to men, then he must have seemed out of his mind. And Carr goes on to say that in order for our foolish eyes to be opened, in order for us to truly be able to see, Jesus himself had to become the fool. He wasn't foolish. We're the ones who are foolish. 
but he becomes the fool on our behalf. And think about this. If there was ever someone, ever anyone, who could have it his way, who could look and say, I deserve better than this in this life that I'm living, who could say, no, I do deserve it, it's Jesus himself. He had every right to have it his way. He's God. Right? He could have looked at this world and says, I'm only living once, and this is not a great way to live here, wandering around, being falsely accused, being executed. I deserve better than this, and he would have every right to say every single one of those things, but you know he doesn't. He comes, and he gives his life for ours. He assumes our foolishness so that we can gain the wisdom of God. The person of wisdom becomes the fool on our behalf to redeem us from the consequences of our folly. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so the invitation then for us right here, the invitation that Paul makes in, in, verse, in verse 18, he should become a fool so that he might become wise. That's the invitation. Come to this table and become a fool so that you can become wise. To live as if you are not your own. To live as, this, as if this is not your only life. To sacrificially live your life for others and seek their benefit and find your satisfaction ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so we follow God's own fool. For only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we consider the way that we do so many things and we are confronted by the fact that they are foolish, that we do follow the world's narratives in so many ways. And yet, Lord, we struggle to see how we can become wise. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see that wisdom comes through you and through only you, that you would allow, maybe for the first time, maybe again, us to remember, to rejoice in the fact that Jesus is our only true wisdom. And as we come to this table, may that be our heart. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.